welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 17. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him a little bit later. If it sounds like I am speaking in hushed tones right now, you're probably right. I usually record this part of the show late at night when my family is asleep. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with author, speaker, and artist, Angel Miller, whose writing includes The Crescent and the Compass, Islam, Freemasonry, Esotericism, and Revolution in the Modern Age, Freemasonry, Foundation of the Western Esoteric Tradition, and Freemasonry, A History. He's also an author of numerous articles on spirituality and related subjects. He blogs about self-development, spirituality, and martial arts at his blog, Fanes. You can find that at fanesx.com. Before we go into the interview, I just want to say thank you to all of our new patrons who are helping support the show, and of course to all of our longtime patrons who are helping make the show possible. If you want to participate in that and become a patron and help us continue doing what we're doing, feel free to go over to patreon.com and, you know, give us some support. One dollar is fine. One thousand dollars is fine. Uh, Okay, so here we go into the interview. We hope you enjoy it. All right, we are here. We have the pleasure of speaking with... Mr. Angel Miller today, and we are going to be talking about all sorts of things, traditionalism, the sacred masculine, uh, mystical and esoteric masonry, as well as all of his books. So this is going to be, this is going to be really interesting. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Angel. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. And we have Janice here as well. Hello, everyone. Okay, so for maybe some of the listeners who aren't familiar with your work, Angel, can you maybe give give a little introduction and talk about, you know, what you're into and and then we'll jump into all of our all of our questions. Sure. Well, I guess I'm mostly known for and um, my first book was Freemasonry a History, uh, which was published by Thunder Bay and Greenwich Editions. Um, my second book was Freemasonry Foundation of the Western Esoteric Traditions. Um, which was published by Salamander and Son. And then my third book was uh, The Crescent and the Compass, which explored uh, historical connections between um, um, Muslim thinkers and and Muslim radicals and uh, Freemasonry and um, uh, most especially um, Masonic uh, renegades and spiritual uh, thinkers within the broad scope of uh, esoteric Freemasonry, I should say. And, uh, and I have a, a new book coming out next year, which is uh, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, Craftsman, Warrior, Magician. That'll be out in February 2020. Um, and that looks at uh, those three archetypes um, from, uh, from different perspectives and uh, tries to explore especially the uh, myths, rituals, and uh, symbolism of uh, the Craftsman, Warrior, and Magician. So, Angel, that... That immediately makes me want to jump into, could you please elaborate on these three stages? I will say right off the bat, you know, it also brings to mind a a great book of years ago um, on Jungian uh, psychology, (laughs) uh, King, Warrior, Magician, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Oh, really? In that that dimension, in Jungian spirituality, because it focuses on positive male 
archetypes. And I feel like, you know, you might, you might be, I haven't read the book, it's not out yet, but I feel like you might, might be approaching things from a similar perspective or am I wrong? Yeah, actually, um, a couple of people have mentioned that book to me and I, and I have read it twice. I read it once uh, years ago and then I read it um, uh, once uh, a couple of years ago. And um, I have to say, it's not, it's actually not my favorite book, but I think the reason why is because I read uh, uh, Iron John by Robert Bly uh, just before I read it. I do you know that book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to me, it struck me as a kind of, a sort of, uh, sort of a, a version of uh, I Am John, but just not as interesting. <laughs> but because uh, you know he spawned that sort of men's um, sort of spiritual movement, and I think that the King uh, Warrior Magician Lover book came out of that. And it, it's it's not really as original as Robert Robert Blight, but you know not to make this thing a, a competition. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the way I approach it is quite different, I think. So you know. I, I definitely agree. I don't know. I don't think it's as original. The thing I liked about it was a division of the, of the qualities of each one of those archetypes. I mean, yeah, that's sort of where my interest was, but I see that you're dividing it rather than into a, a threefold function into a fourfold function. I'm sorry, rather than a fourfold function yeah. into a threefold function. And that's interesting to me because of the, the initiatic symbolism of three degrees and yeah. the dynamic nature of the number three and all of that. So if you could elaborate on that for us, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, actually I do, uh, I do mention this, uh, you know, three degrees um, system in the introduction, but um, the crossman, crossman warrior magician seem to be uh, essentially three casts that you find in European and, and other um and other ancient societies. Um, so I, th I think it's in a way a kind of universal structure of, of the tribe or the ancient society. Whereas, um, you know, the king, magician, warrior, lover, I, f I find that sort of slightly problematic um, as an archetype because it's almost, it's kind of too much and too little because, uh, you know, we're in that, in a society of king, magicians, warriors, and lovers who, who's who's making the food or making the tools and then why, why lovers and not craftsmen. So to me, to me, it's like a little bit confusing, but uh, yeah, that, that's why I structured it as a craftsman warrior magician, because it seems to be the universal structure of, uh, of ancient societies. That's very interesting. And yeah, I, I, I'm interested in kind of delving a little deeper into your ideas of what each of those um, kind of uh, signify and the symbolism there. So can we start with maybe the craftsman and then we can jump into other things as well as we go. Sure. So, um, so when I, when I look at the craftsman, I'm looking mostly at alchemy, Freemasonry and uh, Kabbalah. Um, I should say perhaps that th this um, craftsman warrior magician you do kind of find it reflected in in other societies, and you know you can think, for example, of uh, Freemasonry, where you have the the, the three craft degrees, which is this, uh, all the symbolism is around the builder's tools and the building of Solomon's temple. But then you also have the warrior in the terms of the uh, Knights Templar degree and other chivalric degrees, and then the magician. You you kind of find um, that. Um, in say the Knight of the Sun degree of the, the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, where there's references to Kabbalah and alchemy, at least in some of the forms of uh, of that ritual, and uh, as well in the uh, Societas Rosicruciana, 
um, which was a, an, which was and is an organization um, still going, but it had a, a, a big influence on um, the Golden Dawn. It's only open to Freemasons, but uh, uh, early members of the Golden Dawn were members of the Societas or Christiana, and they took the degree structure from there, although it originates in a, an earlier um, Masonic Rosicrucian group called the Golden Rosicrucians. But um, to go back to the uh, archetypes, yeah, so I'm looking at the craftsman more in terms of uh, of alchemy, Freemasonry, and a little bit of Kabbalah, and uh, mostly the idea of uh, the tools being uh, symbolic of the transformation of the individual and these rituals that are structured around what appear to be like craft uh, or um, uh, guild rituals. So in uh, earlier times as well, the blacksmith also played a role in uh, in, in initiation in in earlier societies, and I find you kind of find that reflected in Freemasonry a little bit. But um, in terms of the warrior, I'm looking more at um, not only uh, the idea of facing one's mortality and facing death, but also this idea of uh, chi and an internal energy, and um, and then lastly in the the magician section, I look mostly at uh, the transformation of consciousness through different rituals and through uh, everything from positive thinking to uh, modern uh, uh, chaos magic and occultism and, and looking at the similarities and differences between them. Okay, very cool. And I, I want to maybe touch on the warrior here for a second. Um, I know that you're interested sure. in martial arts and it's, and have been for a while. Yeah. So could maybe, maybe could we talk about the importance of that... Um, mind and body connection in spirituality i think the the body part is neglected very often yes very much so yeah so maybe your thoughts on on why that's important yeah well it's important and you, you are absolutely right that modern uh, spirituality um is often incredibly disconnected from the body. Maybe the exception would be people who do yoga and then do some kind of meditation as well. Um, they wouldn't be uh, as disassociated from the body. But um, yeah, in general, that that is the case. And I think even in modern sort of new ageism and occultism and alternative spirituality, there's often this belief that somehow the, the body's a bit dirty and you're trying to get away from that. And uh, I think that's just completely... Um, wrong, basically. Um, you know, if you look at um, older traditions, I mean, from tantra to martial arts, uh, the body is a is a you know is not only respected, but it's also a way of um, a way through um, to transcend uh, in consciousness. You know, uh, so with martial arts, for example, maybe you're pushing beyond your limits, uh, doing something you didn't think you could do. Uh, maybe something you you really couldn't do, like breaking a, a block of uh, concrete with your hand or something like that. I remember the the, the first time I did that, um, you know, I, I I smashed open a slab of concrete with my hand and um, with my with my fist, and um, you know, even as it broke, I was actually like stunned that it really did break. And I I would say you know people shouldn't just try and do that because they'll break their hand it takes a long time to reach that point but um you know that's a way of uh sort of transcending your not only your limits but seeing the world in a in a very different way and the same with uh tantra you know it's the use of the physical body to to transcend the world 
Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes it's it's hard it's harder intellectually to kind of maybe rate your progress. But when you are yeah. doing something like a martial art, the objective reality is right there in front of you. You can either do it or you can't. Yeah, that's right. No, no, that's completely correct. And and that's actually a big problem for us today. I think that, you know, because people are maybe not creating anything, that um, they become too intellectual. And when, when you become too intellectual, some, something is really missing and you can become fanatical and uh, very, very hostile. And, um, you know, I think we see a lot of it of people becoming very hysterical and screaming and demanding other people apologize for all kinds, all kinds of things. And um, it's the, the, the people who become these sort of fanatics. Uh, I think most of the time they don't have anything that they're, that they're really manifesting in the world. They, they sort of enter this cloud of intellectualism and theory. And yes. then they try and yeah. impose that on the world. And the world actually doesn't work like, like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, even... Well, another... Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I apologize. Oh, no, no worries. Please. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you think about even slightly less radical spiritual traditions, such as, you know, uh, Zen Buddhism or even Benedictine uh, uh, monasticism, you know, they both emphasize a work in different ways. So, you know, Zen, you might be... Uh, focusing on your breathing while sweeping leaves away or something like that or polishing a mirror and focusing on your breathing or you know with a benedictine monasticism there's an emphasis on like growing vegetables and doing practical humble work you know um, yeah it's not all theory it's not all up in the clouds and i think that maybe in the ancient times there was a little bit more of a consciousness of that. Like, for instance, uh, if you go maybe as far back as we can, we see the the sort of Indo-Aryan Kshatriya case. And I mean, that, that also relates back to Platonic ideas. I mean, Plato was drawing on those, on those um, you know, those early case. And the idea was that the case were, were also spiritual. They really regard they really had to do with different types of souls and different qualities of consciousness yeah and so um you know the the warrior caste had a different form of spirituality than the priestly caste and noble caste and i mean there's a yeah there's a form oh yeah just cutting off oh, yeah. you cut out but um speaking of plato i mean all you'd have to look at is uh form maybe one of the many <laughs> oh he's back <laughs> You cut out there for a while. Do you want to start over with what you were saying? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was saying that this goes back to the the Kshatriya or, or the warrior case, and you know, going pretty far back. And Plato also speaks of these. And um, you know, it seems that in antiquity there were different spiritual approaches or forms of the religion or or mysticism that were adapted to each level of society and those were reflective of states of consciousness um and it, it makes sense to me because if you think about one of the crises in modern society for instance is uh what happens to our soldiers our warriors yeah you know yeah they, they come back and they're wounded and they're damaged and they're not integrated <clears throat> back into society mm -hmm. and before they go Besides the fact that they're youthful and don't really probably have a strong enough ego to withstand what they endure, um, they also are raised within a religious paradigm where, at least in the West, they're taught that 
killing is a sin, that, you know, uh, violence is sort of sinful. You know, there's this sort of semi-conscious or subconscious message imprinting going on that teaches these people that w- to kill another person, to engage in, uh, uh, you know, causing pain to another is wrong. And then they go to war also being told by a different set of messages that what they're doing is right because they're defending their country and their people. Yeah. And there ends up being a psychological conflict on a deep level between the programming that they've received. Whereas if you go back to the Romans, Roman soldiers would come back and before they could even interact with their families, they had to go through a series of purifications to help them adapt back to daily life. Mm. And, and they were also... <clears throat> If you look at the Mithraic cult, I think one of the reasons it was so popular is because it offered a form of warrior spirituality. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. And um, that's, kind of, that's kind of my contribution to what you're talking about is um, I, I just think what you're saying is really valid and valuable because we need that to return. We need that sort of attitude towards spirituality, that practicality, that embodied spirituality, and also that relationship that exists in the warrior's consciousness between honor and the spirit yeah yeah and yeah i was gonna i was gonna interject earlier that yeah you just look at some of the work of plato and uh socrates they were in between philosophy they were wrestling right exactly yeah the the gymnasium was a huge part of of greek culture yeah well and plato does say i forget where that you know you should train your body so Right. So sidestepping a little bit, I'm, I saw on your website you had an interest in uh, Mr. Yukio Mishima, and I'm interested in your maybe your thoughts on him and how he relates to what we're talking about. Right. So Yukio Mishima is um, a pretty controversial um, Japanese author of the 20th century, although if you study Japanese literature at university, you'll definitely be studying Yukio Mishima. But um, yeah, he was interesting because um, you know he he talks about in his uh, um, uh, Sun and Steel um, autobiography that you know he was a fairly weak and sickly um, child, and then uh, he, he makes this interesting comment that uh, I think words came to him first, and he sort of became this this person of words, but they the words can eat away at you like a kind of um, like a kind of insect eating through wood, it's it's corrosive. Mm. And his way out of that was to um, start uh, bodybuilding a little later in life. And I think the, through his uh, his bodybuilding, he was able to escape this uh, imprisonment in, in in words or in the intellect, and was able to kind of expand himself and root himself in the world. Um, so yeah, I think the you know that that to me is really the lesson of Mishima. Um, that you know, words words are in in a way sort of inherently dangerous, uh, especially if you are more intelligent um, uh, than average, let's say, or below average. Uh, you can get all caught up in all kinds of uh, intellectual um, uh, mazes and not be able to get out of them. But the way to get out of them is to develop the body and to put yourself back into the world. It sounds like balance is the answer. Yeah, although. He, and Although he arguably wasn't the most balanced of individuals, but he was—he uh, was pretty fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And, and you know, Mishima is one of those characters in a way, um, like Crowley, although he was very unlike Crowley, but like Crowley, um, they both um, uh, sort of ex experience different kind of realms, you know, Crowley did painting and poetry as well as meditation and all this kind of thing. But um, and he was also he also did boxing when he was at college, of course. Where, and Mishima, um, you know, did a, you know bodybuilding, martial arts, uh, but he also you know appeared in sort of Japanese B movies and gangster movies, which apparently was really scandalous for the for the Japanese at that time. It was a really taboo thing to do, you know. So you know he was a kind of a rule breaker. So where would somebody like Mishima really fit, though? Would you still think he would fit into that warrior consciousness because of the transcendence of the rules and barriers? Because sometimes I wonder about, you know, I've, I'm not a fan of Crowley at all, but uh, <laughs> I think, and I think Mishima probably would have considered him a degenerate. Yeah, but, probably. But um, I am a fan of Paschal Beverly Randolph. and. Okay. He's a perfect example of somebody who definitely moved through multiple worlds. Yeah. And, you know, can you really, with somebody who, who sort of travels through these different social, um, social, even with Randolph, uh, racial realms, uh, yeah. political realms, you know, that kind of consciousness almost seems to me very magician-like. Oh, yeah, for, for sure, definitely. But uh, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I would, well, in some respects, uh, you, you, maybe we could think about Mishra in other, other ways, but I would definitely say he's part of a, of a warrior consciousness. In the, you know, if you look at um, Miyamoto Musashi, uh, Japan's most uh, well-known samurai warrior, uh, Musashi uh, is, is also famous in Japan for his calligraphy and his painting, and he also did landscape gardening, and he was renowned for that at the time as well. So, you know, this, and so with Mishima, you have this individual who's, in a way, uh, I think his life does start to revolve around bodybuilding and martial arts. But, um, but you know, he also is renowned for literature and for acting and doing these other things. So I think that's quite a, quite a warrior thing. Whereas I think the, the magician, you know, it's true that he definitely moves through different realms of consciousness, but I think it's less about, or maybe not at all about building up the body and certainly not this sort of martial aspect. So we have the craftsman, we have the magician. I mean, we have the, well, we see where my emphasis is. We have the craftsman, we have the warrior, and then we have the magician. Now, um, for me, I wanted to also ask you, do you think in terms of, of a person's personal growth, do you see these as sort of grades of development or more like a cyclical process that this that the soul might go through, or or would you say that's different for each person? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I I would say it's probably different for each person, but I think ideally they are almost uh, grades of development. Yeah, and um, you know, I know in some uh, some cultures there's a uh, transition from uh, um, you know as a youth you're going to be um, you know, learning a craft, then you're going to become a warrior who's defending the tribe. And then the magician, meaning, you know, the sage or the, the wise man um, who, you know, knows the stories of the culture and who initiates and who guides the, uh, um, guides the uh, tribe. 
So there is some kind of transition, and uh, you know, again, you could you could liken that to different aspects, even of uh, Freemasonry today, with the you know the Knights Templar degree and the Knight of the Sun, or the Societas Rosicruciana and the Craft degrees. But um, but yeah, certainly, I think um, the vast majority of people who are interested in uh, spirituality and esotericism uh, are, are definitely not going to go through. Uh, through these stages, typically they're going to uh, stick just with um, learning about, say, myth and religion and spirituality, and, and maybe they'll adopt some kind of uh, crossman um, uh, quality, such as learning an art or learning some kind of uh, um, some kind of discipline or skill um, it, within the realm of arts, let's say painting or whatever it may be. Uh, which is uh, Crowley did that, but. Um, but I think it's it's rarer to come across um, individuals who also can some way incorporate uh, the body and particularly a martial aspect. Although there are definitely people who are involved in spirituality and even the occult world that uh, do practice martial arts. Do you feel that ideally um, being able to integrate all those at all times is is where you should be? Like you should be able to be an artist and be able to defend yourself and be able to operate at an intellectual level. I mean, is that the, you think the goal of, of maybe um, moving towards your higher self? Yeah, I would say definitely. And certainly that's the case for me. And I I would recommend that for everyone. And, you know, obviously some people may say that then they're not artistic and they're not musical and, and they can't write. And I wouldn't, you know, want to impose something on people if they really want to, didn't want to do it. But I would say that if you really have no other craft that you that you've developed, then uh, le- at least you know learn to cook and learn that well and learn about nutrition or something like that. And then that can be your art. But um, but I think in general it would be a really good idea for people to learn some some kind of uh, art or craft, whether that's painting or poetry or or writing in some way or uh, um, or some other kind of art or dance or whatever it might be. And then definitely to learn some kind of uh, martial art and self-defense and, um, and also to understand the mind as well and to have a, to have a spiritual practice of meditation and, uh, and to have some kind of reverence for uh, something higher, for the divine. I couldn't agree with you more about on the art point, especially um, especially because art essentially be, it becomes a part of anything you do when you're starting to travel beyond the point of mastery. When you hit when you hit a point of mastery, which is really competence because there's never total mastery. But right. Yeah. When you hit a point of mastery, there's an element of art in almost anything. There's an element yeah. of creativeness and anything and i think that if a person can get beyond seeing art as simply limited to you know drawing or painting or or singing or dance you know the the traditionally understood uh classical arts and understand that art is the is the creative dimension that emerges uh as a as a flower of mastery in in any anything you do then that could help i think people to see that art, art is present in anyone for anyone That's yeah yeah exactly and if you look at the japanese tradition then 
uh, there, you know, drinking tea or serving tea or flower arranging, it's not just sticking some flowers in, in a vase. There's an, I mean, a definite aesthetic quality to it, but it's, it's also, you know, considered a way, you know, ikibana. So, and with the tea ceremony as well, this is a highly elaborate um, structure of and relationship between the host and the guest as well. It's definitely an art. So anything can be an art. It means it requires doing it very consciously and thinking about something Absolutely. higher as well. I could, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a very beautiful state of awareness when you look at the world that way and, and you come to understand that there is a hidden beauty that's a treasure inside of every practice. Even the most mundane practice, you can discover the secret nectar of beauty within it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what you're saying, I think, in, you know, you're approaching these things from different angles, but I feel like what you're really relating back to is what the essence of, of true nobility is. The true nobility uh, comes from this wholeness, this integral perception and engagement with the world and what's beyond the world, and also with the with the development of this aesthetic sense, this, this exalted uh, consciousness, this self-discipline, uh, this ever striving to become better in, in everything. You know, yeah. these are noble qualities. And I see, I see repeatedly in your message, in what you're saying and what you teach and what you speak on, you're really referring back to that, that, orientation am i right or am i wrong or yeah no i th <clears throat> i think that's totally correct yeah yeah now i also want to jump back to before we move on to maybe some other topics mm -hmm. i want to jump back to craftsmen because another thing that <clears throat> uh craftsmen made me think of of course in a platonic sense was craftsmen in terms of demiurge and not right. in the neg negative sense of uh gnosticism but more in the sense of a platonic demiurge who is sort right. of fascinating or creating yeah. their world. Would you say that's accurate to associate that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because you have the idea that the, the craftsman is creating the world out of these um, geometric um, building blocks, right? In in Plato with the um, this Platonic uh, solids and creating as a builder in a way the whole of the universe and everything is supposedly made out of these platonic uh, solids these geometric uh, structures so i think it's, it's uh, very much related to that yeah and you can also i mean you can also craft your world with words i mean an author is crafting uh, a reality mm -hmm. um we we create reality with our words and that kind of harkens back to maybe an egyptian um paradigm as far as uh, words um, creating reality, and that could be maybe associated with yeah. craftsmen as well. Um, I wanted to talk, maybe jump back to, unless you had more to say about the craftsmen. No, 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 right now. We had a we had kind of a broad um, idea of of talking about traditionalism, and yeah, um, that that could be a, a huge topic in itself. But maybe, and, and that seems to be uh, an important part of your your message. Um, what can we, we talk about? What is traditionalism and why, why is it important to talk about? Yeah, so I assume you, when you say traditionalism, you mean traditionalism of uh, or stemming from uh, Rene Gaynon. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, yeah, so René Guénon was a French metaphysician um, around the uh, early 20th century. And um, yeah, he, he was originally uh, in, interested in Catholicism and theosophy and uh, esoteric Freemasonry. But um, he founded the school of uh, quote unquote traditionalism, uh, usually spelled with a capital T. And um, yeah, he believed that, uh, that there were uh, sort of esoteric grades of knowledge. And, um, but he, he departed from, say, theosophy and other, most other schools at the time by suggesting that you had to belong to a particular uh, religious tradition, and it had to be one of the main uh, religious traditions of the world. So Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, and so on. But and, uh, he himself uh, converted or, quote-unquote, moved into uh, Islam and, and lived as a, a Sufi Muslim in Egypt um, for the last uh, couple of decades of his life. But uh, he he's um, he, he's fairly obscure, but he's had a big influence. Um, Prince Charles of Great Britain is is very influenced by Gainon and the school of traditionalism. And then you have um, you know uh, other thinkers. Uh, Evola is probably the best known uh, traditionalist, although he certainly um, um, went against Gainon in in one major respect. You know, Gainon felt that people shouldn't be involved in politics, and uh, Evola involved himself in um, in right wing and really quite extreme right wing politics. Although somehow remaining aloof from it at the same time, but uh, um, yeah, so they would be the the main figures. But uh, sorry, and I forget the rest of your question. No, just basically your thoughts on traditionalism okay. and, and why it's important. Yeah. to to yeah. bring out. Yeah, well, I what I would say that I'm, you know, I, I say this slightly tongue in cheek, but you might describe me as both a traditionalist and an anti-traditionalist at the same time, <laughs> and uh, and and that's because, um, you know, I don't I don't think there's any going back to the past really. So um, so I, I sort of take issue with traditionalism in that regard. I mean, I, I think you know, focusing on the divine. You know, understanding that there are degrees of of esoteric knowledge or understanding, having having some connection to a, a legitimate uh, tradition, I think you know these are all valuable. You know, you can't just make stuff up. But um, but at the same time, uh, I think trad- what traditionalism um, gets wrong, it's often this of quite grouchy uh, movement of people that want to or appear to want to go back in time to something. And I think that we're just beyond that. And, um, you know, we mentioned Yukio Mishima, but another um, uh, Japanese person of influence on me is, I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, the fashion designer Issey Miyake. And, um, you know, now uh, Miyake just produces um, uh, the same uh, uh, style of clothing. They're all made out of pleats. Um, But, um, a, few, a couple of decades ago or a bit more, he he was producing clothing that was really weird by any standards, but they looks both sort of incredibly traditionally Japanese. I mean, you could see sort of like references to samurai and the kimono and stuff like that. But when you looked at them, they also looked incredibly weird and futuristic. And, um, you know, it's so difficult to pull that off to make something look 
ancient and futuristic and and just really intriguing at the same time but you know in a way that's kind of the, the challenge of where we are you know you want to draw on the the best of the past and at the same time create something that's relevant for your own time and and maybe even for the future i think that's extremely well thought out uh opinion because i think people do get too bogged down in in when when they are interested in traditionalism yeah you're right they they do want to go back in time and mishima is a perfect example he was he was doomed uh because he he wanted that samurai ethic yeah that's right samurai uh lifestyle to continue and and that the time had passed that boat had sailed yeah so in a sense he was a man out of time <laughs> you could say that yeah in a certain sense although i think in other senses he was you know he did, he was kind of a man of his time because you know he starred in these like gangster movies and stuff like that so he right. was a contradiction but i think you know honestly all really interesting people are these contradictions and it's like it's really the life's work is to resolve these contradictions it's so true it's so true jung felt that way too jung jung made a big deal about the contradiction and i think he yeah from from my limited understanding of his tremendous genius yeah uh, it seemed that he really felt that that conflict once found was the key to growth yeah definitely it's the, i think it's really the key to creating something new and visionary as well no not new and it's in meaning totally original because everything just in a way brings back the archetype but something that's new seemingly for our, our own time but yeah i mean if you look at almost any figure that's really fascinating and they're always incredible contradictions and you know in the west we <laughs> we love to see things really simply so we we think people are like either saints or demonic and uh, you know some of the saintliest individuals if you knew about their lives uh, you'd be horrified and the same with the, these people that we think are demonic you know the, the in other respects they might be completely saintly but uh you know it is the life's work to really to to resolve the contradictions and not to get taken off in different directions and i think one of the reasons why that's why it's difficult not to get taken off at a tangent or in one to one side of oneself is that you know our western society is itself so polarized so you know if just looking at the spiritual milieu you know you have on the one hand you have an awful lot of people who are sort of flaky and they just sort of make stuff up and just mix different traditions together a bit of buddhism with a bit <laughs> of islam and they don't know anything about any any of these traditions and they and truthfully they don't want to because they'll discover something they really don't like but on the other hand you have the traditionalists um more traditionalist side and the problem that you have there is that they often mistake harshness for authenticity and they think well if i'm uncompromising and i and i say how, how everything else is superficial and just disgusting and I, I wash my hands of it all that somehow they've reached uh, authenticity and it, it's sort of they haven't really because um you know they often or generally can't tell you they know they know what you shouldn't be doing but they can rarely tell you what you should be doing so yeah exactly and Dom and I, I think recently we we talked about flexibility with another guest. I can't quite remember who it is right now, but that flexibility, that that ability to 
be adaptable in your perception and your perspective is essential. And yeah, I, I think that what you're saying is, is really spot on. Um, I personally am very much against the polarizing that I think is deliberate by the powers yeah. that be in our society, you know, polarizing us between, you know, racially polarizing mm. us, a gender polarizing, uh, political polarizing. I mean, it's a, the old divide and conquer tactic. Mm. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems that way. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of it is just done for financial gain because, uh, you know, if a, if a newspaper can say, whoa, you know, there's something really, really bad here. You know, even when, you know, when I read half the articles, it's kind of clear that most of it's just made up. But, but if you can say that, you're going to get a thousand retweets. Whereas if you write a, a balanced article, you know, you probably get two retweets. You know, one thing about traditionalism that, for me is, is, is something that I contemplate is, you know, traditionalism, I think is all was also born because in the past we have been sort of severed in, in, in certain respects from our, our roots esoterically, religiously prior to Christianity. And I, I mean, even though I identify as a, as a Christian on one side of my Mm -hmm. psyche, I also identify as a pre-Christian Mm-hmm. on the other side you know like kind yeah. of like i think jung embraced whereas in the east you know in india and japan um prior to the cultural revolution in china you had unbroken tradition you had you had integral culture that hadn't been disrupted and so religion mysticism esotericism and culture there was sort of woven together yeah that's right and well in in china there definitely was conflict between taoism confucianism and buddhism but then uh, later on they actually tried to uh to bring them together and there was a movement i think it's called three schools in one and certainly you know later on they were able to uh coexist and um and you know to adopt elements from each other and it wasn't a big deal if you practice some elements of confucianism or you you practice Confucianism to worship the ancestors, but then you were practicing Buddhism for your own enlightenment and maybe Taoism to, uh, you know, understand nature and the way, you know, so they, they found a way of sort of integrating each other or coexisting with each other. And, you know, it's, it's definitely true that largely in the West that that hasn't happened. I mean, I mean, I think that the Catholic church has been able to adopt, um, you know, some, some pre-Christian, uh, Greek thinkers, you know, Aristotle and Plato to a certain degree. And uh, some, uh, Thomas Aquinas was influenced quite a bit by um, some Islamic thinkers as well. So, But in general, yeah, it's uh, it, on the sort of mass level, um, all of these different things are against each other, and it's quite unhelpful, actually. Yes, definitely. Um, so in your opinion, what's what's the antidote to this sort of, this sort of hyper hypertrophied uh, uh, situation in our society right now. What do you think is the medicine for the, those people that feel motivated to address it? Which is, which in itself is a daunting task. Just to yeah. face face this intense uh, friction and conflict in society in in the West in in, in that alone, rather than becoming apathetic. Or, or be, or you know, indulging in delusion. 
yeah. to actually face it with a naked, honest perspective. Yeah. Well, I think there are two things, and I think you know, in the West, um, we have to uh, respect our in- entire culture, as it were. So we should have respect for you know ancient Greek philosophy or Stoic philosophers, and then you know Christianity as well, and maybe pre-Christian religion, and to see what. Uh, is valuable in each, you know, not to mix and match them, but, um, you know, to appreciate uh, the last few thousand years of our culture and history and to not just sweep it aside. But I suppose some people might think that that's incredibly Western-centric, but it's rather like, um, you know, one's approach to one's family in a way that, you know, would it have been easier for most of us to have been born in a different family um, we probably think that it would. And uh, are there things about our own family that we don't like? There probably are. But at some point, you have to make peace with your family. And one of the problems that we have today is that people are in their 40s and 50s are still rebelling against their parents. And at some point, you just have to see what was good about your family. Because it also means if you see what's good about your family, even if it can't be your parents for whatever reason, maybe it's your grandparents or further back, then you'll see what what's good about you as well, because there's usually some connection, um, you know, maybe some talent you that you've adopted or some outlook or whatever it is. And the same with our society, we need to make peace with the the different aspects of our society and and uh, um, respect what each brought. You know, Stoicism gave us something, Christianity gave us something, and um, yeah, not to mix and match it, but to appreciate everything. Maybe in this in this uh, way that you find in uh, China before the Cultural Revolution where um, you, you can maybe, you know, have a stoic approach to life, but then your religion is Christianity or whatever it is, or your religion maybe it's paganism or whatever it is. You know, I'm not going to tell people uh, what to do. But I think, um, yeah, I think that would be the main thing. And uh, And then individually, I would say that, you know, there's an awful lot of dislike in society today and, uh, you know, including among uh, spiritual people who claim they love everyone, but then, you know, you've only got to look on their Facebook posts and it's pretty clear that they don't like a lot of people. And um, <laughs> you know, it's different for everyone, but, you know, even the most enlightened people seem to have a, you know, a, a gripe against some group or other. And I would say that, you know, well, if if you do have a gripe against some religion or some group, then uh, well, there's some energy there, and maybe you should use that and uh, actually uh, find what is good about that religion or that group. And you you know, you don't have to take it on board. You don't have to practice the religion. But you know, if you're if you're someone who dislikes Christianity, for example, well, you know, find out what's good about it, and um, and then you all have learned something uh, new. And have a different appreciation and a different understanding of history as well. I completely agree. And I I think that it's not, people don't like to take this approach, but I think that valuing being wrong. Yeah. Being grateful for being, showing where you're wrong, where you're in error. I love being shown where I'm mistaken because yeah. it gives me an opportunity to learn. It gives me an opportunity to improve myself and it gives me an opportunity to practice humility. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I felt with my, my first three books. My, my, my upcoming book is not as historical, but the one great thing about you know, writing about history is you, you find out you're wrong all the time, you know, so, you know, it's a really 
great lesson to realize, you know, I don't know that much after all. And then the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know. <laughs> you know <laughs> there's even more out there that you don't know. Now you've been Absolutely. open to that. It's like crazy. So yeah, so exactly. And and that's a way, you know, you know, there's this horrible cliche term of being childlike. I don't think that's right, but you know, the idea of being open to the world is, you know, that's how you do it by by, you know, constantly recognizing that, okay, I was wrong. There's a whole other world out there that I didn't know about. And maybe that's interesting too. Yeah, that's that's totally one of the themes of of what we're trying to put out there with the show as well. Cool. Kind of a major major talking point. Yeah. Um, speaking of history, and we've touched on Freemasonry a little bit, but I think we should get into that because that's really one of your specialties, sure. and you have a lot of really knowledgeable and 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 great things to say in that realm. Um, can we talk about maybe the impact? Well, maybe how did you get into Freemasonry? How how long have you been interested in and how did that all start? Yeah, well, um, I've probably said this before, but, you know, when I was a child, I grew up in England. And, you know, if you grew up in England at that time, you, you very occasionally heard references to the Freemasons. And it was always references to, uh, oh, these are powerful, corrupt businessmen and politicians. And it, right. it sounded totally boring. And then when I was about, uh, well, when I was around 17, I started getting really, really uh, very very uh, interested in uh, esotericism and the occult and religion and so on. I was reading all, all the time by that point. And uh, somebody told me that the Freemasons practiced uh, ritual magic, which I didn't really believe. But, um, you know, a few months later, I, I found um, a, a copy of the Rose Croix degree and the Royal Arch degree. Um, I think on separate occasions, but uh, in a, uh, the Rose Croix degree, definitely in a in a used uh, bookseller stool in uh, Greenwich Market, and I, I I looked at it and it was just obvious straight away that it was influenced by Rosicrucianism. So I you know I purchased it and um, so I read um, the uh, the Rose Croix degree and uh, the Royal Arch degree. You know, and I, I didn't really understand it to be quite honest. But um, you know, I did think that it was way more intelligent than than what I was coming across elsewhere. But uh, when I moved to New York a, a couple of decades ago, um, I got in contact with the uh, Grand Lodge here. I just walked in and uh, and said I was interested in becoming a member. And um, you know, it took a it took a while, but um, you know, I became a member. And um, around uh, October in two thousand and one. And um, yeah, and then I remained uh, a part of the fraternity since then. Okay, cool. Can you maybe talk about esoteric masonry and maybe the the impact and influence it has had on Western esotericism? I know that's a huge subject. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. So, um, well, you, you know, there have been um, uh, different ways in which Freemasonry has influenced Western esotericism and, and the occult, though I. I don't think Freemasonry is itself a cult, but um, I suppose what you know we'd have to go back to the 18th century, and um, when Freemasonry moved to uh, to France and Germany, particularly France, um, it started to become reinterpreted, and uh, all kinds of claims were made for its origin, and um, so so you had theories that it came from the Crusaders or from the Knights Templars or from alchemy or from the Rosicrucianists, from the Rosicrucians and so on. And later from, you know, ancient Egypt and this kind of thing. 
and uh, you know these uh, these um, uh, are, are all pretty familiar to us today. But uh, I think you know what Freemasonry did was it it enabled people who were interested in say alchemy and hermeticism and and uh, other spiritual traditions um, to have some kind of way of of uh, practicing them because uh, until Freemasonry, um, all of these things were sort of solo pursuits mostly, you know, if, and um, and there weren't that many people involved with, uh, you know, real occultism or anything. But um, Freemasonry get, created a kind of group dynamic where you could go and you go through a ritual and then the ritual would teach you a bit about alchemy or a little bit about Kabbalah and this kind of thing. I would introduce you to uh, Kabbalistic symbolism or alchemical symbols. And, um, and from there, you get other societies such as the Golden Rosicrucians or the Golden Rosy Cross, as it's called. And that had um, the same, uh, had the, the structure of degrees, I think it's nine or 10, that uh, the, the Societas Rosicruciana adopted uh, later in the 19th century. And then from there into the Golden Dawn and other orders. And, um, you know, so, so um, you know, uh, uh, McGregor Mathers and w uh, Westcott were both uh, members of the Societas Rosicruciana and they fo formed the uh, Golden Dawn. Uh, the Theodore uh, Royce, uh, he, you know, one of the founders of, um, of the Ordo Templi Orientis, he was another Freemason. And the same with Crowley, he was also a Freemason in what's called irregular lodges, um, so not re not recognized by uh, mainstream American or British uh, lodges. But you know, he still went through the same um, same Masonic rituals and uh, and took Freemasonry seriously. So there are all these direct connections, and then even it with something like Wicca, which has uh, you know the, the three has its own three degrees, refers to itself as the craft. Uh, Freemasonry refers to its to first three degrees as craft masonry, and there's all kinds of uh, terminology that that seems to have been drawn from uh, Freemasonry in the Wiccan degrees. You know, as well as um, uh, they also use terminology from Crowley and from the Golden Dawn as well. But you know, that's another slightly strange uh, influence. But it's influenced, uh, you know, a lot of different organizations. I mean, esoteric Freemasonry had its influence on gain on as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's affected almost all uh, Western esotericism. Well, one thing that is is a interest of mine and concern of mine is, if you look at indigenous societies, initiation uh, serves multiple functions. It it brings uh, it marks. Uh, life passages, you know, important yeah. life transitions, say from, yeah. you know, childhood into adulthood, or uh, it also, you know, the initiations also mark passages into, you know, marriage and things like that. But in addition to that, they also um, frequently uh, bring the person into contact with numinous spiritual powers, mm -hmm. you know. And one thing that I go back and forth about in terms of Western initiation is how effective it is in that regard, because ultimately initiation in its purest form should actuate, activate or awaken um, spiritual capacities in the, in the human being or place the human being into contact with uh, conscious spiritual forces 
that in turn right. uh, set into motion a sort of awakening of the analogous elements within the human that correspond to the spiritual uh, force or consciousness or entity that's uh, triggering that. Mm. And would you say in your experience um, that Freemasonry or any other uh, Western initiatic uh, esotericism uh, performs that function in whole or in part? Um, well, certainly in, in part. I mean, you know, Freemasonry, um, you know, is, is definitely different to, let's say, occult initiations in that, you know, it doesn't say, um, okay, now you're in contact with spirits or, or here are these occult powers or anything like that. But I think what it, it does do is um, it awakens the individual to his own mortality and to the fact that there's something beyond the material world, a divine creator or some kind of divine being and uh, focuses him on um, life's journey towards uh, towards death and through death um, to whatever might lie beyond so I think it, you know it definitely opens up the individual to the spiritual uh, life and and how to live that in daily life and then you know other there might be other um, organizations out there that put you in contact with uh you know more obvious spiritual forces but um um yeah i, I may have some questions about the caliber of, of the people running most of those societies i know some are certainly much much better than others though, so oh yeah for sure um in, in my personal opinion it's one of the things that the west could use a little bit more of is is again it, something we've fallen away from we've lost contact with is that sort of initiatic contact with um spirits of one kind or another uh or deities for that matter you know because people speak of god or the gods in western culture in this sort of casual off-the-cuff way as if they're conscious. yeah but yeah, when, that's right yeah <laughs> Whereas if you if you would have said you know to a Greek person of about three thousand years ago that you know you were walking between one city and another and Apollo came to you and spoke to you you wouldn't have you might have been questioned to see if it was if you were telling the truth but you wouldn't have been seen as being crazy for that right yeah well sure and you know of course what's happened with the uh, with your Western occult world and you know Jung has many many great things to say but I think it's become uh, misused so that now it's like well the gods and goddesses are just in me <laughs> and they're just parts of my psyche <laughs> and I'm, I'm really just talking with myself and that so they don't exist as spiritual forces in themselves yeah yeah and I, I I think that hopefully some of the work of esotericists moving forward in the West will be to Reestablish these contacts with uh, genuine, genuine deities. Because even when Plato was talking about archetypes, he wasn't speaking about this. Um, he wasn't speaking about an abstract, uh, you know, psychological concept. And I, I think that you people take Jung, misunderstand Jung, and don't grasp the fact that Jung was uh, speaking about Plato's concept about in a way that relates it to how they operate within the psyche but he right, was right. but if you really read jung jung 
For instance, Jung was a, <laughs> very strongly believed in the existence of the gods and of spirits. Right, yeah. Like, right, and, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, you know, in the Red Book, for instance, a huge emphasis, there's a big emphasis of, on Fanes, the, the god of light. Yeah. And that's, you named your blog after Fanes. Right, right. Uh, I just wanted to ask you what, uh, what, what your thoughts on Fanes are, too. Yeah. So, I, you know, I have to say, I don't know that much about Greek mythology, but uh, so I, I didn't want, I probably couldn't comment that much, but I actually did derive it from, well, at least partly from Jung. Okay. And I, I also maybe wanted to, to maybe caution going too far to one side or the other. Um, it seems like a lot of people are really anti psychological model and say in the magical communities um, to the point of where they are looking at spirituality as completely external. Um, whereas, you know, if you look at maybe panpsychism or even like in hermeticism, you have the noose, it's, it's in your mind, but it's outside of your mind as well. So we can't, we can't right, totally yeah. throw away the fact that consciousness is within us and, and we can communicate with deities through our, our self and our mind. Um, so I think throwing that out completely might be a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, definitely things are going on in our minds. And, you know, one way, I guess a traditional way of, of um, communicating with um, deity or with spirits or gods or whatever would be through, uh, through dreams, you know, you would dream them. So, you know, so in that sense, I mean, today we would say, well, that's just a dream. But the person who dreamed it would say, yeah, it is a dream, but it was also a, a message from a god as well, or from God. Right, right. You know, so. Great, great point. And, and very quickly, I do want to say, I think that another thing that hopefully we can transition out of is seeing dreams as simply a form of, you know, subconscious processing, because really, when it comes to the spiritual realm, dreams are a method of communication as valid yeah. as speech or, or any other, as valid as even the internet. I mean, dreams mm. aren't simply reverie or fantasy, but they're communication, they're a communication apparatus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Angel, um, one, one last question here before we... Uh, uh, talk about you know you where to find you all that stuff. So you have your you have your three degrees and that you have that magician degree. But what about the fool? The fool. Yeah. It's a, um, can you say a little more about that? Well, we're called the magician <laughs> and the fool podcast. Oh. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to I don't want to leave Dominic <laughs> out. You you don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did want to. I did want to because there's one of your um, one of your concentrations going back to Freemasonry um, is you know. And if anyone yeah. wants to learn more about Freemasonry, you you just basically scratch the surface. Your your two books are are pretty comprehensive: the Freemasonry a history and then Freemasonry foundations of the Western esoteric tradition. Yeah. So we would direct people towards those books if they want to go a little bit deeper. But what about the you have another book, The Crescent and the Compass. So I'd like to, before we go, touch on the yeah, connection, the right. interplay between Islam 
and Freemasonry. Where does that where does that connection and what's mm-hmm. the significance? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So it's um it's really fascinating, and um you know when I started researching, I really wasn't anticipating that there would be so many connections, but there there actually are. But um yeah, so from around the from around about 1850 to about 1930, somewhere about, um, you get a lot of uh, connections between, let's say, uh, fairly radical Muslim thinkers and uh, the more um, spiritually inclined intellectual uh, Freemasons, um, and it's pretty much pretty much a, a, a across the globe. Um, so in uh, so in Egypt, for example. Um, um, you have uh, Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, who, uh, who he wasn't Egyptian, but um, I believe he was Persian of descent. But um, he uh, he joined um, uh, Freemasonry in the country and then uh, founded his own uh, national Grand Lodge. And uh, al-Afghani is actually uh, the uh, the father of uh, pan-Islamic um, ideology. Which is which itself has influenced uh, sort of uh, Islamism today, but uh, you know, so he's an important uh, and controversial fig- figure, um, but certainly uh, highly important in the in the uh, history of modern Islam, and uh, you know, even in um, somewhere like uh, Great Britain, um, there's a figure called Henry William Quilliam, and uh, he's one of the first converts to Islam during the Victorian era, and uh, he becomes um, a Sheikh, uh, Quilli- uh, Sheikh uh, Abdullah Quilliam, and he actually receives um, some money from uh, the, the Ottoman Empire for uh, to uh, to uh, establish uh, um, uh, a printer and a publisher and uh, an institution. And um, you know he's very, very, very active in um, promoting the rights of Muslims under the British Empire. And uh, you know he he looks like a really strict Orthodox uh, Muslim. But uh, what's so curious about him is at, at the same time he's uh, involved with um, not just Freemasonry but some really sort of weird strains of esoteric Freemasonry. He was a member of the Swedenborgian rite of Freemasonry, which I, I don't believe is going anymore um, anywhere in the world. But uh, that was a, a, a sort of reworking of Freemasonry from uh, the perspective of um, Emanuel Swedenborg's uh, revelations. So Swed- Swedenborg was a Swedish mystic who um, sp- supposedly um, was visited by angels and they told him the real meaning of each passage of the Bible. So there was a, a, a Masonic rite based on, based on wow. Swedenborgian's, uh, Swedenborg's uh, writings. And, and Quilliam, yeah, and although Quilliam was, a, a, in a way, a highly traditional Sunni Muslim, um, he was involved with the Swedenborgian rite at the same time to some degree. And then uh, later on, he, he went and founded his own... Um, his own Masonic-like order called uh, the Ancient Order of Zuzimites, and the the ritual is clearly taken from Freemasonry. Um, it's virtually word for word in certain parts, um, but uh, but he uh, he stripped out the Masonic mythology and put in this other really weird mythology of about the ancient ancient Egyptian gods, but they're no longer gods, so it's not. Uh, the god hmm. Osiris, it's uh, Cap- Captain Osiris, uh, and then this sort of thing, and um, and then Captain Osiris has to go and 
uh, rescue Virgin Isis from a well that she's been putting. It's it's this completely bizarre mythology. But again, it's this um, you know pretty radical but traditional Sunni Muslim who, you know, okay, there weren't very many Muslims in Britain in the Victorian era, but nevertheless was very active in promoting the rights of Muslims under the British Empire. Looks very traditional, but at the same time, he's uh, practicing esoteric masonry. And then, uh, you know, um, and then even in, you know, America as well, you have uh, um, Moorish science, which uh, claimed to practice original Islam, but was influenced by Rosicrucianism and took some of the trappings from Freemasonry. They look very much like uh, Freemasons uh, with sashes and fezes, which probably came from the shriners. And, um, you know, and even in the, um, uh, uh, the 5% movement, they have a, a catechism, which I believe is in Nation of Islam as well. And in the catechism, they refer to Freemasons as uh, mu- mu- Muslim sons. So mm. <laughs> it's these are weird connections that you find all over. And then from the flip side, um, you start finding, you know, like Crowley, um, published uh, the uh, Scented Garden of Abdullah, the, the satirist of Shiraz, uh, which is a kind of, uh, it's supposed to look like an Iranian Sufi work. And, uh, and actually in the introduction, he says, I can't, I can't tell you the secrets of uh, Sufism, if only because I'm a Freemason. So he draws this parallel and seems to suggest that they're the same thing. And you have other uh, figures becoming interested in Islam. Um, the Shriners in America are a, a, is a group that Freemasons can join and only Freemasons can join. And today it's known for sort of funny parades and, and charity work. And uh, they have their own hospitals, which are you know, free um, for children who have burns. I think that's what they treat exclusively. And um, But the original, the, the early Shriners were, were definitely interested in, um, in Islamic mysticism. and um, uh, you know, I've seen early histories of the shrine where they say, "Well, the the, the terms that we use are just translations of uh, of Arabic terms, and where we come from or are connected to the Bektashi Sufis and this kind of thing." So there was these like weird crossover currents in the, in the East and the West uh, with Freemasonry and Sufism, which is really not not being explored by anyone. I was, surprised well, that that was my that was my question yeah. have these claims been substantiated by anyone Has, oh well i'm or, pretty sure that the um the, the shriners were not from bektashi uh, sufis but you right. know nevertheless the fact that they were making these claims is is in itself kind of interesting yeah absolutely and you go pretty in depth i assume in your book i haven't i haven't read it yet but um it sounds like a pretty scholarly pursuit into this yeah topic. yeah i think so and you know it doesn't it's not exclusively about freemasonry it's more about islam but there's a, a large chunk which is about uh, freemasonry but there are some, some other chapters i look at the influence of uh, rene gain on uh, on prince charles and and his take on uh, on islam and why he sees islam the way he does which is from a more sufi perspective and i also look at um at Khomeini as well um which is probably the longest chapter in the book, actually. You know, Khomeini, um, and I'm not defending Khomeini, but, you know, over here he's seen as a complete maniac. But actually, Khomeini yeah. was very interested in Islamic mysticism from uh, from a pretty young age and, and and remained interested in Islamic mysticism throughout his life. And uh, and actually, when he 
became you know the supreme ayatollah uh, he was asked to give um a series of lectures on iranian tv and he he eventually agreed to it and uh you know when he was at a uh, seminary he had, uh, he had experienced all kinds of um uh discrimination against him because of because of his interest in islamic mysticism which was really regarded as dangerous and you know possibly sort of a little bit satanic and after the revolution he went on tv and said uh um you know people shouldn't be discriminated against because uh, because they have an interest in mysticism or philosophy and they're just teaching the same things as the theologian in a different way which is kind of a radical thing to say at the time so yeah so he's a you know again he's a very contradictory character we think of him as a religious fundamentalist you know um sort of you know sort of like pope benedict on crack would be our impression <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but and I don't have a gripe against Pope Benedict, actually, unlike a lot of people. But, you know, that's our impression. But at the same time, he's very, very interested in, you know, in Islamic mysticism. So, and, you know, again, you know, all of these people that we look at in, whether it's Pope Benedict or Khomeini, you know, we always look at these people in a very superficial way. And what, what the CNN is saying or what Fox News is saying, it's completely ridiculous. People aren't really like that. So you know, so I think I delve a lot deeper into um, uh, into what's going on and the undercurrents that, that that just aren't talked about, but that but they really are incredibly valuable and tell us a lot about our civilization and how it connects or disconnects with Islam. That's awesome, and yeah, I'm glad we were able to give some some food for the. Uh, hard right wing conspiracy theorists now that we're connecting Islam with the Freemasonry. So I'm sure that'll be something they can. Yeah, trust me. Think yeah. About. I get all kinds of uh, messages, uh, you know. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's history and, um, you know, people should be able to understand history and to know what's going on. So, and, 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 and why and not be able to look at things in this crazy conspiracy minded way. But, <clears throat> So we covered a lot of ground. Um, we definitely want to thank you for indulging all of our questions and going into such great detail, oh, thank you. Um, illuminating these ideas. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work and, and how to get in contact with yeah, you? Yeah, well, the best way would be through my, <clears throat> through my website, which is uh, just my name, angelmillar.com. Uh, so that's my website. And uh, that would probably have most information about me on there. Um, I, I also recently started a YouTube channel called The Spiritual Survival. But <clears throat> if people go to my website, uh, they'll be able to find other links as well. So that's probably the best way. Okay. And your new book is, let's see, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, Craftsman, Warrior, Magician. And when is that, that going to uh, be out? In, uh, in, in quite a while. It's going to be out in February 2020. So about nine months. Okay, it'll be here before you know it. That sounds like a an awesome book, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, Janice, anything else from you? Uh, just a big thank you to Angel. It was totally a pleasure. Uh, I've had respect for your message and your work for quite some time. I think it's important right now, um, everything you're touching on is bringing an important voice, important, important counter voice. You know, in terms of, you know, you're bringing sanity to 
some insane perspectives, uh, you know, whether it's the paranoia about Freemasonry, which is entirely unfounded, or the uh, sort of anti-masculine uh, messages out there, um, and also even the anti, you know, even with the rise of extremist Islam, it's extremely important for us to be able to understand the the good and positive things that mm. Islam has had within it and the inf positive influence that the positive uh, qualities of Islam in the past have had on, on yeah. culture. And I think you're working along all of those lines and it's, yeah. it's, it's important work. And I, and I hope that this interview gets more people to pay attention to those messages. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It was really a pleasure to speak to you, and oh, likewise, to you again. And maybe when your book comes out, we can have you on again to uh, oh, definitely explore these topics. But we wish you the very best and the greatest success in all of your endeavors. Great, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, Angel Miller, very wise individual. We greatly enjoyed our discussion with him today. We especially appreciated the fact. And he has a balanced perspective on many things. You know, this is the attitude of somebody who, instead of cultivating biases, is seeking uh, light, is seeking wisdom. And that is the ultimate objective for us, is we're not tending in one direction or another, not letting the pendulum swing too far in either direction, but rather embracing different perspectives and trying to get a clear, honest, and, and accurate perception of deeper matters. Would you agree, Dominic? Um, we're certainly going to have biases. Everyone's going to have biases. But like we spoke about, um, I think Islam was a good example. Um, it's really easy to maybe want to avoid that topic. Um, yeah, we just need to have that openness and that willingness to talk about things that may sometimes be uncomfortable. And there's a lot of value in what Angel writes about and talks about. Yeah. And, and I think that attitudes and perspectives like what he presents are increasingly more necessary in our polarized culture. I mean, on a daily basis through the medium of social media, through, um, through the media, on television, through you know personal uh, nuclear atomized culture, we see this sort of fracturing of society and, and biased uh, orientation. And what we need is a more integral attitude, an attitude that sees the whole, that understands that uh, sometimes apparent opposites are the friction between them is capable of producing growth. Or in the realm of politics, apparent opposites are not really opposites at all. And it's more of bread and circuses. And yeah. not to be fooled by um, blue team versus red team, you know, uh, my team versus your team, us versus them. If you get too wrapped up in that, especially as a spiritual person or as a magician, um, you are going to be bound. You're, you're going to be chained to uh, an ideology or uh, you're going to be limited. You're not going to be able to grow if you are continuing to hold on to those um, uh, sports team kind of mentalities. Precisely. And the, that is really the aim. 
The aim is to disempower you. The aim is to eliminate your agency. Because if you're going to become caught in some political conflict, if you're going to be caught in some struggle against, you know, against the other gender or, or another race or ethnicity, then you have essentially become captive to your, to your slavers. Because as a magician, as a shaman, as a medicine person, as a witch, um, I understand that there are people who believe that esotericism should be in the service of social justice. Uh, but, uh, but ultimately, the true way to enact such changes is first by changing oneself. And then the second way to enact such changes is by enacting those changes within those closest to you, your, your local your local society and healing is more is more effective in the long term than hating than destruction none of us separately are going to be able to change the monolithic power structures that have been set in place at this point however what we can do is make meaningful changes in our own personal lives and in the lives of those close to us and those changes sort of can have a butterfly effect. Magic is more effective that way. Um, we should always try to avoid any form of collectivism, uh, groupthink, because that's entirely antithetical to the mystical perspective. It's entirely antithetical to the magical approach. The more you engage in group mind, group mentality, groupthink, the, the less empowered you will be because your power will be joined to the powers of others and therefore your will and your agency will be bound up in the will and agency of other people with a variety of different desires, motivations, impulses, antipathies, and sympathies. Oh, absolutely. But not, not to say that organizations or groups are bad, though. I mean, we spoke a lot about Freemasonry. Um, so you just have to be aware at all times. And in order to be aware, you need to know thyself. It always kind of comes back to that. And then you'll, you'll be able to navigate successfully and consciously. Um, I think the, the problem is when you're unconsciously being tugged this way or that way, and that's where the problems be, you know, arise. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's definitely a difference between being part of a group that shares similar goals, ideals, and agendas as yourself who consciously and intentionally choose to bind, bind together, whether that be a Masonic lodge, a ceremonial lodge, a, a witch coven, a, you know, shamanic group, a, a, a house in one of the ATRs or any other sort of uh, esoteric or mystical enclave if you're with those of a similar mind and if you're with those of a similar heart and you're working along noble lines in that regard, then a more power to you. But please, please, by all means, liberate your mind from slavery to uh, thoughts you've been taught by the system that governs our society. Okay, and I think that was enough of our long-winded uh, diatribe for today. Make sure to check out Angel's work it is phenomenal it is of exemplary quality he is a rigorous scholar uh, a truly independent thinker and 
sort of a renaissance man. He has his own website, angelmiller.com. He also has a blog called Fonny's, which is at fonny'sx.com. Um, Inner Traditions also has an author page. Uh, innertraditions.com is where you can find that uh, author page, and you can find some of his, you know, a little blurb on the book that's coming up. He also has a Facebook page. You can like and uh, probably get in touch with him there. It's worth it. It's worth it. You can only benefit from talking to him. He's a very interesting fellow. And thanks to him, uh, Piers Vaughn, and other wonderful individuals, we're really seeing a renaissance in uh, the understanding of the esotericism within Freemasonry. And uh, thanks to people like them, I think we're really, we're really moving forward to a, to a, 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 an era where hopefully Freemasonry can be understood in the proper context. Absolutely. And you can find us on Facebook as well. You can find us on YouTube, all the places you find podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. We had a lot of fun recording it, and we will see you in the next episode. Awesome.